It is always a pleasure, even though it's been forever. <laughs> the few occasions in which Matt Glazers and I have have encountered each other have always been pleasurable. <laughs> How about that? Well, anyway, to, today I'm thrilled to invite and to welcome uh, the legend Matt Iglesias, the eponymous Iglesias Award. Rosie probably hates me for that. <laughs> it was meant as a compliment. It still is. The Iglesias Award was coined at the dish, I don't know when, at some point in the 2000s, uh, because Matt is famous, or at least I found him famous, for being constantly interesting. And also, I mean, as simple as that, it's just, I'm always interested. You have something to say. It's, it's different. And because he's also a writer who has also been able to look at stuff he's written in the past and said, well, maybe I got that little wrong. Maybe I need to adjust my views uh, depending upon the, the advance of news and evidence, which is, you know, a lovely thing to hear and to appreciate. So Matt, I just want to thank you for being here and for risking all the opprobrium and stigma that attached to sitting in a room with this asthmatic potential COVID spreader. Um, so welcome. I'm really glad to be here and hopefully we make it out alive. <laughs> yes, we are in a room. We're not wearing masks. But we do have plexiglass and we do have a machine that's supposed to suck only the virus out of the air. <laughs> so we should be fine. Um, I was just saying, actually, I, was, I had lunch with Peter Staley, you know, the ACT UP dude. He was worried about getting COVID. Uh, and I was like, we can get COVID, Peter, because they'd have to rename that documentary, How to Survive One Plague. <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah, a great, it's a great movie, incidentally, <laughs> if, you, if you haven't seen it. It's a great documentary. It has um, some great footage, um, including Larry screaming at people, which is always uh, how one remembers him. So Matt, what do you? Th we are in week, almost week three after the election. The president has not conceded, and in fact is insisting, in all caps, that he won by a lot, not just a few, a lot. And I'm told by lots of people who are friends of mine or relatively calm uh, writers that I should stop going nuts about this and accept it. It's just not to be taken seriously. The guy is a loony and in denial. And I don't buy it. I am, I am incensed by this. I, I, I can't help it. I am a conservative in the sense that I really believe in adhering to constitutional practices and precedents and the importance of a legitimate democratic process being understood, widely accepted, and moving along. What do you, what's your attitude to Trump's refusal to do what every president has done? I mean, I, I wish I could muster the earnestness to be as upset as it, you know, as, as it deserves, right? I mean, I, I really do think that his response to the outcome of the election has completely confirmed the basic elements of the case against him, that this is very destructive, right? I mean, we, uh, I, I don't know you, you're, you're English, but, you know, in America, we, we always learn about George Washington and why is George Washington a great historical figure? And it's not because, you know, the Judiciary Act of 1791 was so amazing or anything in his policies. It's because he set a precedent for a democratic republic, right? That he took office, he behaved in a certain way, he ran for re-election, and then he stepped aside. Right. And we established a peaceful transfer of power. And that's a very difficult thing. You know, countries really struggle with that. Um, it's hard. But every president 
There's been a lot of bad stuff happened in American history, but nobody has tried to pull the kinds of things that Trump pulls so often that at this point it's like, well, you seem ridiculous if you're like out there screaming like, wow, this is inappropriate. And everybody will be like, hey, calm down. You know, it's just Trump being Trump. But like, that's terrible. You know, and the fact that even now you can see, you know, Republicans rolling their eyes and kind of wheedling away from him. And Marco Rubio called Biden the president elect today. And so, you know, good for him. Small, small clap. But like they're not marching up to the White House. And the reason they're not is because they've made the judgment that the base of the party, a, a very large swath of the party, the party that will they need for any future political career. Um, So it's not just this man's intransigence and looniness. It is the fact that that looniness and insanity is endorsed, supported by a critical mass. Clearly, it seems to me the majority of Republicans in the country. That is is more than just an individual being a freak. It is is a system, in my view, having been... uh, become vulnerable to what essentially is a cult. And the the media, I mean, I think we will later talk about some of the pathological elements in media on the left, but the conservative media that has facilitated this for years, you know, they lie to their audience, right? And it's a, it's a shame. I mean, I, there's something uh, great about ideological media, you know, about about a partisan press. That's something that that we've had a lot in the United States. But you watch, you know, Newsmax or OAN, whatever that is, or Breitbart. And what they're doing is they're taking advantage of conservative people's distrust of mainstream institutions to tell them stuff that's plainly not true. And over the course of the past four or five years, you know, people who believe in low taxes or don't like abortion or whatever, you know, writers, smart people who still know up from down and right from left have been driven out of, you know, the conservative movement and the conservative media. And it's very toxic. I mean, look, I remember um, and because I've been on both sides of this, when I turned on the Iraq war back in the early 2000s, I was eradicated from right wing media. I mean, there would my name was never to be mentioned on National Review ever. Um, even when Fox News did a story on me on a story I did about Trump, they put up the cover of Newsweek. They blurred my name out. I was a non-person, so I was cancelled. And the conservative soul, you know, you think a book that would be reviewed was not reviewed anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't reviewed in the Wall Street Journal, for example. It was a, an act of obliteration. And so I, I do, I, and people don't hear me say this enough, so I need to say it. The wokeness on the right, certainly under Bush and certainly under Trump, in terms of the ability to, which I mean wokeness, I mean simply an intolerance of any kind of internal dissent, was and is airtight on the right, even more so than I think on the left in many ways. And, and I, I feel bad, you know, you look at this guy, uh, Raffensperger, the mm-hmm. Secretary of State in Georgia, and like, he's just trying to do his job. You know, all he was a Republican state rep. I mean, I think he has ambitions in national politics. I think if there was some kind of way he could he could bend the truth a little bit for Trump, you know, he, he'd probably be willing to do it. But like, he's the guy on the spot and everybody's asking him to pretend that there's vote fraud and there isn't, and he's doing the right thing, you know, God bless him. But 
Instead of people having his back, you know, you got Lindsey Graham and everybody else throwing him under the bus. You've got Mitch McConnell is doing his weird, cynical thing. And it's just, it's terrible for the country. And yet, here's the thing, and yet we've had these four years of really grotesque abuse of the truth, abuse of power, in in my view. Uh, And yet, the Republicans turned out in really astonishing numbers. I mean, it was a fantastic turnout overall, if you believe in the high turnout, Mm -hmm. which I do. Um, But it was not a landslide for the opposition. Uh, In many ways, as we know, the Republicans seem to have made gains in the House. I mean, marginal gains, but nonetheless gains that the Senate is basically back where it was. I, I mean, I don't think it's changed that much. Who knows what's going to happen in Georgia? I, 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 I can't believe that they're going to elect two Democratic senators from Georgia. I just don't think it's going to happen. It would be strange. It would be strange. I, 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 I doubt it, unless politics really does churn. I mean, we're in a very unstable moment, so anything is possible, I guess. But that is not exactly an endorsement of the Democratic Party, it seems to me. In fact, that Given the enormity, and I felt this happening to myself, even though I've been committed anti-Trumper from the get-go um, and remain so and voted for Biden. I, I mean, I've, I've, I've supported Democratic candidates now, for, you wouldn't believe it, but for, for, for a, a decade and a half. Um, nonetheless, I could feel like this unease with the Democrats and my sense of discomfort with them just psychologically and temperamentally, the rhetoric coming from them really did all it could to turn me off. Um, and obviously, I was not the only one who felt this way. And, and the resilience of the Republican vote, even under Trump, is something I think the Democrats need to think about a little bit more. Well, you know, Biden, I think, won a quite convincing personal victory over Trump. Yes. House Democrats, they're holding on, but they lost ground and they missed the chance to make some gains in places that they've been looking at. The Senate map is just very difficult for Democrats. And, you know, we shouldn't you shouldn't twist that map into public opinion. But I think in the House, you know, what you saw is that people were not sold in a convincing way on either a Democratic Party policy agenda. That was okay but they were tepid on it. And they were also not sold on the idea that the Republican Party deserved Armageddon, right? And I think in some ways, you know, if this was a book that was supposed to have a happy ending, I think they would have gotten the Armageddon, Mm -hmm. right? There would have been a landslide. Mm -hmm. Uh, Democrats would have passed some stuff. Mm -hmm. Some of it would have been gone too far or backfired Mm -hmm. or people wouldn't have liked it. And the GOP would have come back, but they would have gotten a good, a good scare, you know, and maybe rethought some things. But that didn't happen. And I think, I mean, this is what what I've said since the election. Numerically, Trump's gains with working class African-American and Latino voters were not enormous, but they were not trivial either. And it's a telling sign that what is happening in American politics is not what sort of cutting edge progressive thinkers want to say is happening. You know, that people looked at 2016. I mean, Trump said racist things in that campaign. Um, And non-college voters 
flock to him, white ones. And so progressives said, well, you know, this is all racism. It's all white supremacy, something like that. And started more and more foregrounding a kind of anti-racist politics that, you know, comes out of college campuses. It comes out of university environments. And it didn't sell. You know, it didn't it. They couldn't win back non-college white voters, but they didn't. By calling them racists. <laughs> well, but, Surprise. It's not, but I mean, it's not just that they didn't they didn't mobilize the black and Latino electorate in the way that in theory it would. And I think it just underscores that to a substantial extent, these are not ideas that have broad purchase. I mean, that it's, um, you know, defund the police is the most sort of extreme version of it. But I think the whole vocabulary coming out of academic circles it's just literally not meaningful to large swaths of the public who are older or who didn't go to college and who, you know, want normal politics that's about normal stuff, making your life better in some tangible way. And of course, people disagree about like what will make your life better. But there's a just a conventional, you know, I'm going to put the stop sign here. Taxes are going to go up or the spending is going to go down, something like that, rather than uh, I saw Ayanna Presley uh, tweet yesterday. Uh, student debt relief is a racial justice issue. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, we is can, there any issue for her that isn't a racial justice maybe, issue? Maybe, but it's 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 the backwards politics, right? So. What what people on the left used to say is they would complain. They would say, well, people on the right are injecting race into questions of economic distribution, and they are doing that to try to divide people and hurt us. And now people on the left have started doing that, right, to talk up an idea like student debt relief, to like psych themselves up. They'll say, aha, this is really about racial justice. But it I mean, in that case, it's absurd. How I mean, could that student be? I mean, debt it... relief is a transfer of funds to people who have student debt. Right. Some of those people are black. Some of them are white. Most black people don't have student loans. Most white people don't have student loans. It, it's a and fine they tend thing. to be middle class, <laughs> upper middle class. Uh, yeah, middle class. Like I mean, you know, different people argue the, the numbers on it, but it's there's nothing more banal than looking at what kinds of debt people have like it's just really not about mm. race you know mm-hmm. um and the belief that you know conservatives would do that kind of thing i think cynically based on the accurate perception that most voters are white i don't even know why people on the left are like it it doesn't it doesn't make sense factually it doesn't make sense strategically it's not working it and mobilizing the electorate it that? is that people's fundamental political identity and choices are rooted in their ethnicity. Uh, and, and let's take that concept of the Latino or in the Latinx. <laughs> I mean, I've always found that ridiculous. I, I don't blame uh, at all people who are suddenly being told that they're this weird name. I feel the same way about being told I'm, I'm no longer a gay man. I'm just an LGBTQ plus person. And it's like, fuck you. No, I'm not. I, there's nothing transgender about me at all. And I'm not at all lesbian. And my bisexuality has never emerged. So I'm not. Um, but it turns out that obviously that Latino, that the concept of Latino is 
incredibly, it obscures as much as it illuminates. First of all, these are different nationalities. They're, sure. they're different national cultures. In the same way that there were the Irish and the Spanish and the Italians and the Poles in the past, all of whom were from different parts of Europe. These are from different parts of South America. And of course, they're going to have very different perspectives. They're also new Americans. Mm-hmm. And new Americans, I, I count myself among them. I'm one of the immigrant hordes. <coughs> um, uh, you know, most of us uh, are pro-immigration because we've lived it and we love this country. But we also, most of us, went through a pretty fucking difficult process to pay our way here and, and to go through the legal process. And to, it, it's, it's an incredibly arduous and difficult and expensive procedure people go through to become Americans. Um, and it took me a long, long time. But I got there in the end. But many of them will say, when the democratic primary is all about who can come in without any committing any crime at all, when you're going to legalize illegal, previously illegal border crossings, I know there's a distinction between civil and criminal offenses here, but mm-hmm. the, 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 the basic gist was everybody in, we don't really care if you're legal or illegal. That's, the, that's what you heard. That's what I heard. Also, um, and so there may be Latino, lots of Latino votes in favor of uh, effective immigration enforcement. It's not, it's uh, certainly a proportion of them. Well, I mean, I think you definitely one thing you see in South South Texas in particular is that a lot of Hispanic origin people are working for the Border Patrol, you know, or they mm-hmm. are have jobs mm-hmm. uh, constructing the border wall. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just to say it's a community like any other where there are divisions based on people's occupation, based on people's position in the class structure. Um, but it's just to say that the progressive conceit that everyone's politics should be shaped around the struggle against white supremacy or or whatever is not it just doesn't correspond to people's actual politics no. I, I i saw this very amusing scene in um Virginia a couple weeks before the election, and it was uh, Trump volunteers were getting together to do something, you know, door knocking. And it was a, it was a mixed group of, you know, sort of white, you know, classic MAGA people and Vietnamese uh, immigrants, uh, which is a, a conservative leaning group. And they were having this incredibly bitter fight about masks uh, because, you know, the Vietnamese people, they're um, they're they're Asian origin people and they they have ties to their home country and that culture. And they're very different and frankly, much more effective uh, COVID-19 response. And the uh, the white Trump supporters are acting like stereotypes uh, out of a, a liberal caricature of Trump people. But the first and second generation Vietnamese in Northern Virginia, they're still they like the Republican Party. They don't want to come within 100 feet of anyone who will say anything good about socialism. And, you know, I understand like the the reference point of socialism for Bernie Sanders is something completely different from the Communist Party of Vietnam. And I totally appreciate that. But for Cuban and Venezuelan and Vietnamese and and other people, it, it has a completely different meaning. And we're not all campaigning in Vermont. Um, and you know the the diverse and people, the people who self-select to come to America, yeah, are the least likely to be adherents to the, the the ideologies of the regimes from which they fled. And you know, I'm not saying as you are not saying that Bernie Sanders <laughs> is you know is is a is is a communist, 
but there are associations in your, in your mind. I, I had, I came from a, at that point, a socialist country, and that's partly why I loved America because it wasn't as drearily socialist as my own homeland. There's a, you know, there's a, there's a symbolic politics for everybody, and it differs. And the the diversity of the country cuts in both directions. You know, not everybody uh, looks back as fondly on the good old days as some conservative people do, but also they have different outlooks. And, you know, I think immigrants, I, I wrote a, a book uh, earlier this year. It's called One Billion Americans. It's, you know, it's, Sorry, a, it's a fairly- By all means, plug it. Tell us about, tell us about <laughs> no, it. No, no, I think it's relevant. You know, it's a, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a fairly progressive book, mm-hmm. I think, in terms of its policy prescriptions. But it's a patriotic book. You know, it's, it's about America and, and national greatness. And I got pushback from a lot of left-wing people, progressive people about that, right? Like, is it appropriate to be enthusiastic about America? Um, I think it's appropriate. And also, obviously, people who come to America from other countries. We didn't come here because we thought this place was a, a sinkhole of white supremacy. And I think, I always thought that Kamala Harris could do so much good for herself to talk about to talk about the fact that her parents came to the United States at a time when the racial situation was much worse than it is today. There was uh, incredible levels of, of discrimination in place, and they were aware of that when they came here. But nonetheless, even at that time, they saw the United States as a place where they would have significant opportunities that and didn't exist for them in India and Jamaica. States. And yes, and it, and it worked out, right? And I think that's such a an obvious story for her to tell about her life that's not inconsistent with the kinds of things she does say, but just that emphasizes diversity and immigration in a more positive Well, that was the Obama light. And that that was Obama. And you know, you can see in his new book, he seems to have some some second thoughts about his sort of Obama patriotic shtick. Uh, but it worked really well. I mean, he, he won Iowa. He, he won Ohio. Me. He certainly conned me. <laughs> he became president. He passed a lot of important laws. Like, I think he should I think he should pat himself on the back a little bit more. I mean, it's politics, right? Like it, I do, too. <laughs> I mean, I think he was an extraordinarily effective president. And I think he moved the country in ways it needed to be moved in a way that was not that domineering or, or uh, self aggrandizing or any of the ways that one would think. I mean, I, I, this may be why, you know, my Englishness kind of, defi- I couldn't see what on earth could be wrong about Barack Obama. I mean, even if you're this right winger, it's great for the legitimacy and continuity of America that someone with his background become president. It helps, it helps bring people into this narrative in which we can, we can, we can, we can overcome the barriers of the past. It's going to happen slowly. It's going to happen ineluctably, but it does so constructively. And it tells a story about America that we can all be a part of that, doesn't, that talks about the future of this country by of involving more and more people, as opposed to the fixation on the distant past and the insistence that no real progress has been made. Right. Uh, and, and that's such a fundamental, why, why do you think your progressive friends are so in, in, sort of instinctively loath to praise their own country 
um, and to and to and to have that sort of George Orwell kind of patriotism that 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 infused his socialism, which was a much more aggressive socialism than the, the American wow. left today. But but he but, but and he had the same complaint about his fellow intellectuals. His fellow intellectuals on the left just didn't didn't really love England. Didn't see, I mean? Didn't see its story as one of greatness and of and of uh, uh, of something to be proud of. What what's gone? What, what just explain to me where they're coming from? You know, patriotism is very hokey, right? And I think I think you really saw in the in the Trump era, right? Just the the terrible graphic design of his Make America Great Again hats. And, you know, there's a real... They are the most incredibly <laughs> recognizable. Yes, yes. But, you extraordinarily know, a, vivid, a, brilliant piece of marketing, there's for a, fuck's there's, sake. There's a divide on taste uh, well, that's in, class, in, in the world. Right? Class, no, no, no. And I think, I think that that's right. You know, because in Orwell's time, right, it's a while ago now. It's a, it's a very... Uh, I'm talking about the 40s, 30s a, and 40s. A, a much lower level of education in the population. So he has, on the one hand, socialist intellectuals, but that's a tiny group of people. And then you have a real working class of manual laborers, often people without high school degrees, to say nothing of college. And that's the socialist rank and file. You know, and there's this... And not just the rank and file. They're also ministers in the first Labour government. They are, you know, the people like Anar and Bevan. These are people who come from... The people they represent. The trade union leaders are practitioners of the, the the trade, right? You know, the the head of the mine workers union will be someone who worked in mines. Uh, now we have much higher level of education, right? We have a, a mass of college graduates. It's like 30, 35 percent of the population, a little bit more than that of the electorate. Everything, progressive groups are managed. They're professionally managed by professionals, right? Whether it's a labor union, a civil rights group, what have you, it's graduates of the same selective institutions of higher education. And so the kind of thing that was a was a niche, you know, an intellectual niche 80 years ago is quasi mainstream today. Not mainstream enough to win an election, but mainstream enough to be on the agenda. And that kind of idea of a blanket cosmopolitanism you know, is there, right? No, so you're still to the point. But this is so, about class, right? It, I mean, it is. This is about snobbery at, and at it's, some level. And it's part of why Biden, I think, I, I haven't loved Joe Biden as a politician over, you know, the arc of his career. But for the current moment, the fact that he, um, you know, he'll be the first president in a long time who just went to a public university. Um, he is not, was not considered the smartest guy in the room in the Obama White House. Some of the people there kind of looked down on him a little bit and, and somewhat the same in the Senate. He's a little bit hokey. You know, he's the kind of person who would want to talk about malarkey in a debate. Uh, but it's good. It's, a, it's an important do you think any, this is? Do you think any other of those candidates could have won this election? Uh, you never know. Um, but basically not, right? I mean, <laughs> uh, and how did all of our pundit class not see it? Right. Well, the, they all dismissed this guy. I mean, Josh Marshall's out there saying there's no way on earth this man is the, <laughs> the most in, inappropriate person for our moment. And, and I'm just asked, wondering where, what is in their heads? Well, not, not to pick on Josh but, because it was <laughs> widespread. But, um, and not only that, they, they didn't like him 
primarily through this racial narrative of the crime bill and and his previous association with old you know good old boy senators um but it turns out that the people who got him in there from James Clyburn and the middle class sane centrist black voters in Georgia so this you would think this would completely overturn these these assumptions or at least prompt some kind of rethinking or recalibration but no this thing is unfalsifiable this this whole this whole idea that we live in this racialized society in which everything is dependent every single sec- segment of our lives is dominated by this rather crude idea of racial identity as the fundamental core identity of every human being in the society well, just, real... it keeps being disproven all the time there's a real reluctance to listen to mainstream working class black and hispanic people in the united states now if you were wondering about like what do white people think everybody understands if you've got like you and me and like three other writers and you got us together in a room that that would be a a bad sample of white american opinion you know what i mean like we'd live in cities and you know we would have our political disagreements but on certain kinds of social cultural issues would be way to the left of the mainstream and so you got to go look right there's old people there's working class people there's people live in the country Uh, but of course that's true of black and latino people as well there are a lot of great black writers out there but just like white writers are more left-wing than the typical white person Black writers and intellectuals are more left-wing than the typical African-American. There's nothing wrong with that. But it means you, like if you're a white person or just a person and you are interested in what's going on, you can't just read your favorite columnists. Right. You're, you're getting a different Also viewpoint. true of the, the gay world, mm-hmm. um, where obviously everybody that goes into gay journalism or anybody who's, as a gay person, has come through mainstream journalism, they, the... the, the the political skew there is extreme on the other. They, they generally almost universally have far left politics. It mm-hmm. turns out that we don't, I don't know whether these exit polls are to be taken that seriously, but it does seem there was a possible increase. We don't know quite what from gay voters. Sure. Um, I get a, you know, I get an email from the human rights campaign all the time telling me that we're under assault uh, in an unprecedented assault on gay lives under Trump. And of course we're not. This is the fucking best time in the world to be gay or lesbian or transgender. The Bostock decision just came down giving transgender people inclusion in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. This is the, and, but we're still oppressed. Now, most gay people just don't hear that. There's a, there's a trope that to concede that progress has been made is like a form of giving up. And I don't understand. I, I don't agree with that. I don't understand that. I mean, to me... The most controversial piece I think I ever wrote uh-huh. was in 1996 when I said, these new drugs mean this epidemic, as we've known it, mm-hmm. is over. Mm-hmm. It will be an illness. It's not going away. We, more people are going to die. But as a plague, it's done. You would have thought, <laughs> right. this is good fucking news it's say and when you look back in history in 96 you see the death rate plummet immediately uh but they don't want to accept it they don't want to take yes for an answer because it seems to me now this is what i would say they become addicted to this idea of themselves they become addicted to the sense that they will always be a victim and that's part of their identity 
And so to be shown that they're not anymore is just completely, it, it, it assaults their basic identity and therefore they resist it. So the human rights campaign now has like this you know, deluxe, huge, vast building that keeps growing, <laughs> staffers everywhere, hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue um, because they can't let go. Well, it's, uh, you know, I, I used to work uh, right, right by that building. Oh, right, and, of course. You know, so I would walk past it on my commute every day. And it's a fascinating thing because, you know, the marriage issue was so important to so many people, uh, many of whom, fortunately, had the financial means to contribute to organizations that were going to fight on their behalf. And I think that battle wound up being an unexpectedly rapid victory. You know, it, it did, was, but it wasn't it, just, but the point is, that, again, this is the notion that marriage equality was about white people or white men is, is, is just completely not true. I mean, lesbians were far more interested in this issue. Mm -hmm. That lesbians who had children especially were desperately interested mm -hmm. in this. It is also, it's, it's the poor. If you're very wealthy before marriage equality, you, you could afford to come up with rather elaborate legal yeah, contracts complicated. that could that took a lot of money for lawyers to figure out but the, you could you could defend your position in the law if you were a poor black couple uh lesbian couple you had nothing but but so again this is this is the rewriting of history from the left into the kind of the gay rights movement as if marriage equality was some sort of elitist thing when in fact it was the most popular populist thing you could think it, it gave anybody it gave People in Alabama and Mississippi, yeah, immediate rights that they couldn't have dreamt of in a million fucking years and, until it happened. And and, and anyway, I, I mean, I just I why think, would they do that? Why do, I think it is more helpful to people who are suffering from injustices to acknowledge that progress happens. Yes, you know, including in the recent past uh, on on all different kinds of issues. You know, well, something like environmental. No, we, we are in a huge crisis environment. It's a very no serious problem. It's probably the worst crisis the world, as long as humans have been on it, have dealt with. But previous problems with the environment, the ozone layer, for example, other general standards. Of, yes. I mean, not, to, not giving Trump's line about our beautiful, clean air and all the rest of it. The but air is a lot cleaner than it used to be. It is. It, it, it we live in a much better world. We yeah. have huge, but that should, instead of saying, look how much we were able to do, Yes. In the past, of course, we can master this. Yes, there is this extraordinary um, pessimism, and uh, I mean, I'm not blaming the left on climate. For God's sake, the right is like no. so so brutally wrong about this in this country. Um, but but this is the thing that the right is wrong about, right? Is that mm -hmm. the progress is possible? Like just that's, I think, the thing you want to say that you know, we if we had if we had had the right's attitude toward clean water, you know, there'd still be rivers burning in Ohio. You know, it's like you can fix these things. Well, look, and so, and so not, why don't, let's why don't forget we... Nixon and some of the other people in no, the past people, that really people did. People do a good thing, but, it, it's, was... but it, it's why can't we talk? So I got in trouble. I surprised myself because, you know, sometimes as a writer, you get in trouble and you know it's going to be trouble. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have no <laughs> idea what's going to come at you. you stumble into trouble. So. <laughs> yes. I after, know nothing about this, Matt. I, have, I just have to listen to your experience. After George Floyd died, I wrote a piece, and it was about how the number of African Americans killed by police officers had declined quite substantially since Michael Brown and that wave of 
protests. I think almost halved. It was something close I, to I, I forget exactly what it was. And it was weird because it was partially offset. More white people were being killed in rural areas, even as fewer black people in mm-hmm. big cities. At any rate, I, I didn't think of this as a contrarian. I do contrarian stuff. I'm a contrarian person. I thought this was just, I'm, I'm pitching in for the team here. I am trying to tell people that these past five, six years worth of marching and signs has worked. and talking, yes, that it's effective, <laughs> that like this is this is good. Like people, it, mayors are changing policies and it is working. I got incredible blowback for this. And it, it, it was, you know, again, sometimes you write controversial stuff with your eyes wide open. I was taken aback by the interpretation of that positivity as antithetical to the cause. To me, what will hurt, I I think this wound up happening, what hurts the cause of criminal justice reform is when the people who are most passionate about it become convinced that it's hopeless. And so they go either endorse something crazy, like we just shouldn't have police departments because reform is impossible, or they do something irresponsible, like smash the window of the stores. Right. That you, in fact, had a movement that was making progress, that people, you know, white Americans had been too dismissive of these guys. You you sort of knew you heard, but people were not listening. Right. And video was very potent. It it made people pay attention. And the increased prominence of African-American writers and and people in, in the media was making more people pay attention. And things were, in fact, changing. In a in the way that things change, you know, it's not well, actually, wholly that, satisfactory. In that particular case, it was quite a swift change. But actually. it would, but it, it was, was in a matter of years, right? But I mean, you you never get, unfortunately, in politics, you don't get like the catharsis, right? Like the head of the police union isn't like, oh my god, we actually are terrible. But but things were happening, like it was getting better, and then somehow that was not the right thing to say about it, that that was like downplaying the but suffering or the injustice. The... But I, I don't think that that doesn't make sense. Like you, we're, you're not going to make progress, whether it's on climate or race or, you know, there is homophobia in America still. But like you don't address these problems by pretending there hasn't been progress because there, a obviously there has been. But B, like the hardest thing in politics is to maintain uh, morale. You know, that it's it's hard to make constructive political change. You need to be engaged. You need to be determined. You need to be disciplined. And that means you need to know that progress occurs. Yes. I mean, let's take the question of women in society. I mean, there's, there seems to be this, um, and there is a, there's a political science term, but there's a social science term which is escaping me at this very moment. But the more progress you make, the more intolerable what remains becomes. And the ability to lose perspective, in a sense, is profound. But we've also had, and let's face it, a concerted intellectual movement designed to argue that no progress has been made on race at all. The use of the term white supremacy to define the United States in 2020, uh, which is now routine, routine. Mm -hmm. And for most people, the term white supremacy means Ku Klux Klan, 
uh, Nazis, uh, people who believe in the, in the superiority of the white race and the white race, whatever the hell that means, is God given to rule. Other, I mean, all that stuff, sure. which is which is the idea, honestly, that that is that ideology best describes the United States now in, in a way that would not be able to differentiate it from the 1830s. Uh, it's just bonkers to me. And this is this is this is what you get in, in movies like. 13th or, 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 or the James Baldwin movie, which constantly simply uses images and metaphors and language to disguise the fact there's no real argument underneath this, except, of course, in the American mind, in the psyche. So there are traces of this that will always be here that definitely affect us today. Um, but there's also the human nature of tribalism and, and in, in, in instinctual uh, human resistance to the other. I mean, those things are universal constants. If you look at any analogy across any of the world, you go to Russia or China and ask if they're less racist than white Americans, I mean, it would be absurd. Um, and yet that's, it was a deliberate attempt to say no progress. Someone like ta Coates, whose tax on Obama as a sellout, essentially, and whose interpretation of Trump was entirely about the restoration of the, I don't know, the, the response to reconstruction. Uh, it's just it's just intellectually pathetic, I think, to to avoid all the nuances and changes in human history to maintain a sort of airtight ideological construct uh, which denies progress and which, of course, in the case of Tanazi, doesn't believe any progress will ever be possible short of violent revolution. Yeah, I mean, it, well, it'll be interesting to see where things go if Trump exits the stage or not in some capacity or other. But, you know, you look, uh, Biden, obviously, white guy, old white guy, uh, but, you know, vice president, woman, half black, half Indian, you know, Cedric Richmond coming into the White House. And it's just, you know, that is the real America, for better or worse. You know, it's a diverse country. Um, we have, because it's diverse, we have problems. You know, I remember I've, I have some friends who are French and uh, they talk about how flatter, how, how French people used to flatter themselves that they didn't have America's racial problems, that African-Americans could come to France and, you know, there was no segregation, it was integrated. And then suddenly you had large-scale immigration from Africa into France. And there was a lot of racism suddenly. It was the, the presence of diversity is what created you know, ethnic conflict. But at the same time, the United States is not free of those problems, but is actually more, I think, on the other side of the door than any European country that I can think of. You Let know, alone any a, other country yeah, outside of Western Europe. Think of Poland. Think of Russia. Think of China. When I think of China, where if you're not Han, you're basically not even a, a, a real citizen. Right. I mean, and, and, I, and in way the way that they walk into Africa, the way that, and yet we never all we hear about is 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 white supremacy. We never hear about Han supremacy in China or the fact that this is a universal human failing. Right. I mean, I to me, I think that's the sort of the main. But thing the other bizarre these, thing these, Matt, these look, issues exist everywhere, and you know, and and Trump amped it up, right? I mean, Trump did ride backlash to Obama, to diversity, to change. And then I think you have to 
so there was there was always this this dual response, right? So the Biden response to Trump is to say, this is not who we are. This is not the, the true America. And then there's another response, um, which is to say, oh, you know, maybe this is the true America. Maybe this is the true America. Maybe America really is as crude as Donald Trump. Right. And I just like I don't think that's right. Trump got 46 percent of the vote in 2016. He's he's doing worse in 2020. He's losing quite badly. And, you know, Barack Obama remains the most successful politician of our era. Right. Um, that is, you know, there's, there, there's no one America. No, but exactly. That's, that's, but that that is that is the real American electorate does not actually want like crazy uh, Trump stuff, but also doesn't want to be told that the crazy Trump stuff is authentic, doesn't want to like cede the flag to the most absurd right wing people in the country. Yeah. I mean, I would say that the 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 the, the Trump boom after Obama and indeed the resilient, I think, uh, for me, inexplicable hatred of Obama, given how incredibly moderate the man was. I mean, from my mind, he was always a liberal Republican. And, and uh, even though he has he's, he's he may have gotten a little bit more liberal over time. But uh, this I will give that analysis. I was genuinely shocked and genuinely mystified by the hostility to this guy, especially given what he inherited and what he was up against and his his good grace, his his being a role model for many conservative values in terms of, for example, his amazing marriage and family life, um, his, his hard work, his moderation, his restraint, his elegance, all this stuff. These are conservative values that he represented, and yet they hated him. So I, I, if I were to take out the partisanship, which is obviously part of it, we're, mm-hmm. we're polarizing uh-huh. that way. But I do think I ended the Obama years believing America was more racist than I had understood it to be. But it doesn't mean to think, say that I think it was a bunch of white supremacists. I, now they exist, they're there, but, but casting the entire country in that tone struck me as incredibly crude. Uh, but it you is know, complicated. So here, I, I do want to <laughs> try to try to call you out a little here, right? Okay. So, so you went on a, on a thing uh, when, when Bush was president about Christianists. Uh, for for quite a long time, and to me, I think it was similar. I mean, I I'm a secular person. Uh, if I was religious, I would be Jewish. Uh, I have never been comfortable with that kind of uh, you know overt political religion that, yeah. that that you see on on the right in America. Uh, but at the same time, I wondered why were you using this exoticizing language, right? Why were you analogizing that kind of politics to, uh, I, I think, violent Islamists, you know, um, well, who, were, who were executing heretics but and things like to, that. But, but and I can you, see it's like, well, you know, you were fired up, right? I mean, I look back on it 10 years later and I, I see where you were coming from. But at the time, it seemed to me, I was like, yeah, this is a little, a little I, uncorked here. Well, you can say that even though you had to put the term violent in front of Islamists to make your analogy, which suggests that it's not as strong as you might think. Hmm. Islamists, there's a perfectly respectable, mm-hmm, and in the Middle mm-hmm. East, ubiquitous notion in Islam of no real separation from church and mm-hmm, state. Mm-hmm. And, and legitimate political parties can be called Islamist without being mm-hmm. regarded as 
terroristic or violent or extremist particularly. And so what I was, and again, this is probably because I was writing, trying to make that point, Mm -hmm. which is kind Mm -hmm. of an esoteric point in a way, but the, the way it was heard from my fellow Christians, as it were, was offensive. Yeah. Um, so I was playing with language and I take your point that it was probably if I want to win those people over, it's okay. On the other hand, my point, fundamental point was that religion, I believe, should have nothing whatsoever to do with politics, at mm-hmm. least insofar as Christianity is concerned. That's my understanding of the Gospels. That's my understanding of Jesus' resistance to power in all its forms. Um, and so I was, as a Christian, also trying to defend my own faith mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because it was being distorted and it has been fatally distorted by these people. And it means we've lost an entire generation of people who rightly see this I mean, stuff and you, think this is repellent. You do see this, this incredible, I mean, with Trump, incredible corruption Corrupt. of oh. Christian. Well, again, I think also that I would say that I was onto something here. The politicization <laughs> no, I, I give you that. of Christianity. And in this last election, it is simply shocking to me that the paranoia and victimology and politicization of evangelical Christianity has meant that they're, by f- they're basically the entire rampart of this guy's support. Uh, when I could not imagine a single human being more antithetical to every single Christian principle I can imagine than Donald Trump. I mean, could you imagine Trump saying that the meek shall inherit the earth? <laughs> I mean, going to church. Blessed I mean, it's a, are the poor. It's a joke. And this was like, you know, I would look at Bush and I would say, look, I, I don't agree with this guy's uh, politics and I don't agree with evangelical Christians religion. But I do understand why they look at him and they say, OK, this is one of our guys. So yeah. I'm so I'm into that. So and I, also, I, I totally Bush, got Bush that. Bush is a Christian, for right. example. Right. Like he practices the religion. You look at people <laughs> saying Donald Trump is the defender of the Christian faithful. And to me, it's like it's literally a joke. You know, like, but you see, but if you are actually Christian, it's it's both a joke and a pain and a terrible wound. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you can see, you know, principal Christians, evangelicals like Pete Weiner or Michael Gerson or uh, friends of mine, uh, David Quo, for example, mm-hmm, who's mm-hmm. Uh, uh, who's dead now. But but I and I admire, I deeply admire their resilience in this. And but I. But I've always been a passionate opponent of the fusion of religion and politics. And one of the reasons I love America is that by attempting to separate those two things, it both, it, it both made politics more successful and religion far more successful. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, uh, and, you know, that's, that, that was my concern. Um, it still is. I, I do think these people have poisoned the image and the credibility of Christianity, along with the child rapists and, and corruption in my own church, mm. which has been another ordeal. Um, but anyway, that's my defense of the Christianism stuff. I, I, I really, for example, in the marriage debate, in the marriage fight, I really went out of my way to just talk to people mm-hmm. on, the far, on the evangelical right, because sure. they were the, among the most, as well as the Catholic right, uh, and so I think in practice, I probably, you're right. I, I mean, if I were being purely political, I would not have used that term. <laughs> unfortunately, I wasn't. And also, unfortunately, as a writer, you know, you sometimes do go over the top. That's the point. I'm, right. Part of me, part of me, you know, part of one of my problems with the current atmosphere is that, you know, it, writers should be free to make mistakes. If you're going to... 
if you're going to try and interest people, provoke people, create debate, think things through, a little provocation every now and again is not the worst thing in the world. Um, I mean, I remember, um, you know, I know, I'm product of the Kinsley era yeah. of journalism, which is, um, as he would say, a couple of things he used to say to me was, um, if you think you've gone too far, you probably haven't gone too far, far enough. Was one of the things that, oh, well, he'd say to me things like, why don't you write that down now? Because you won't have the balls to write it down in 10 years' time, which are incredibly insightful things, actually, um, in terms of the constraints upon of speech and of, and of conversation. Uh, and my view is the writer of all people, I mean, there are plenty of other roles to play in society in which you can enforce order and try and restrain uh, sort of uncomfortable ideas, but the writer of all people should be the one who's the most resilient in defense of the most objectionable writing. Well, uh, insofar, you can criticize it, but, but, but this shift from good, solid, robust criticism to this person must be banned but this person must be fired or this person must be ostracized for these things uh, is, to my mind, horribly unhealthy. Um, and I know, look, there are consequences. I know there are. I mean, when I read some of the extremism out there on, in the right-wing media, it really horrifies me. But I'm not going to try and shut them down. I don't, I'm not. I'm going to tear them apart if I can, logically, but I'm not going to shut them down. I don't have in me the impulse to silence people. I, don't, I just don't want to. Where does this impulse come from? Well, I mean, this is where, you know, you and I, I think, are similar, you know, kindred spirits, old bloggers. Um, and let's talk about that old blogging days. Uh, so when, we, when did you first start, like, entering into the Internet in terms of a writer? Like 2002. I mean, yeah. I was in college. I, I started my blog 2002. I, I told this story. I was an intern in Chuck Schumer's office. And so I was gathering his press clips mm. and I saw... There, Slate had like a like a blogs roundup column. Um, and so you and Josh Marshall and Mickey Kaus and stuff would be in there. And I thought those sites were so cool. I, I like I just thought it was great. It was the kind of writing that I really wanted to do. And my, my roommate was a computer science major. So he helped me, you know, like get a site up and off the ground. And I love that blog stuff. You know, I, I, I love Michael Kinsley. I loved I, I worked at Slate for for years with David Potts was was the editor there. And that spirit of, you know, colleagues essentially psyching each other up to <laughs> to go public with the stuff you would say at the bar. Yes. You know, to take that the, the, the basic premise, I think, was that most people, even professional writers, their most interesting ideas, they are a little afraid yeah. to take public. Yeah. And that what you need in colleagues is people who will pump you, people who will help you. I, 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 I like working with editors. You know, I, I'm, I'm now out in Substack land a little bit without a net, and I, I, I'm hoping to get some more help. But as long as you get spell checked, man. But about, yes. <laughs> but about. But you were the worst. <laughs> Back in the day, I, I your, your spelling. I, I can't was, spell. I, it's, I, I wish I knew some other language that I could spell in. Uh, but, you know, to say that, like, everybody, you, you fear embarrassing yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's very natural. Mm -hmm. And what you need are coworkers who encourage you to be as interesting as possible, to put, you know, 10% more spin on the ball, you know, to like to really go for it. Well, let me tell and, you the story. And of the, the current ethic in media is very 
antithetical to that. It is a, I think, beyond any particular political idea, it is a spirit of conformism. It's just very present at a grassroots level. And people would rather have the edges sanded off of their own work as long as they get to do it to everybody else. And that's not how it was 10 years ago. It's not how I think it should be. I don't think it produces interesting work. Well, and think- it doesn't do anything to like contain the most crazy no. and extreme and hateful things that people write. The world doesn't actually work that way. So it, it doesn't achieve whatever it's supposed to achieve. And I think it makes a lot of tedious uh, kinds of writing. Yeah. And uh, I mean, here's, here's an example. We were at the editorial meeting of the New Republic, I don't know, 1989. And I was visiting, actually, I was at that point up in finishing my PhD. And they had a discussion at the editorial meeting led by Kinsley on domestic partnerships. And uh, for gay people, I was the only gay person at the, at the meeting. And so Mike says, what about you? And I'm like, well, why don't we just get to have the right to marry each other? As a, just as an argumentative yeah. point. And Mike said, ah, write that down. Sorry, no, that's <laughs> Write good. that down. That's what you need to write because that's going to piss off the right because you're going to co-opt conservative values. It's also going to piss off the left because it's a whole new direction. And that came out, it was a purely uh-huh, random uh-huh. remark in part of a freewheeling conversation that I then took and wrote down. And, and, and that was the first major foray for this to be a serious public idea. And so these things do happen. Now, they're going to end up doing something ridiculous and stupid. I mean, there are plenty of columns that you and I have written, probably. Sure, it doesn't always work that out. one wishes perhaps <laughs> one had not quite put it that way. I remember there was one moment where Kinsley asked me, and this is the one moment when I said, no, I'm not doing that. Because uh, it would, it would, he wanted me to make an argument that, that men who were essentially pedophiles had historically actually played a very important part in the mentoring and mm. teaching of generations without actually molesting them. That mm. it was that who who would really be that interested in teaching an eight-year-old? <laughs> anyway, I could see the point that he was making, and I'm like, Matt, my, you want me publicly to defend chaste pedophiles? I, mean, I had a completely different editor <laughs> pitch the exact same oh, really? idea to me. So apparently this is out there, but nobody will write it because, but so listen, so, but so I think to your story, right? So it was important to have a gay man in that room because that's part of how that particular idea got off the ground. And I think that something that I think the progressives get right about the journalism of that era is that, you know, there were not enough non-white people in those rooms doing those kinds of pitches. And there has been a big improvement on that score. But we somehow lost along the way the spirit of cheer each other on. You know what I mean? Like, let's, let, let's, go, let's go hear those wild takes from a wider range of perspectives instead of doing mutual veto. Well, in this particular case, in my case, it was like, you're the gay guy, but I want you to write something that's going to upset gay people. Sure. Uh, and similarly, you know, I think you're right. And, and, and I didn't do enough at the time. To, I mean, I was too young and had too little power really there to, to, do, to, to find new writers. But it was also incredibly hard to find new writers who were different. Um, but, uh, yeah, 
I think it's great that there is more of that, what you, I hate to call it, but lived experience. I say sure. that we have people who have different backgrounds and who have different perspectives on their lives and can contribute something. What's, and that's phenomenal. But when you look, say, at the New York Times' op-ed, you know, the diversity smorgasbord, um, who there is actually surprising you with the minority position that mm-hmm. you didn't, mm-hmm. or, or forcing you to think things through as opposed to heavy-handedly enforcing or dolloping another dose of the orthodoxy? Um, well, in the Times, you know, I mean, to be honest, like, the Times is, is better than most. They have the... They have the cream of the crop there in, in, in a lot of ways. And but is there a black columnist there who might actually occasionally say something that would not, um, that might be a little different than Charles Blow? I don't know. I mean, I really no, like, I, 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 I really like Jamel's column there. Um, I, I think that's great stuff. But he's a, yeah. he's a totally <laughs> hardcore critical theory uh, fanatic. I, well, I don't think that's true, to be honest. But this is what I do think. Right. And this is so what they have at the Times, which is better than most places, is they have Jamel, they have Michelle Goldberg, they have Ross Douthat, they have David Brooks, they have different people writing their columns. Right. And what so much of the um, competition has now offered is the least common denominator stuff or weird far left things, often not even in the politics coverage, right? So I, I saw people were passing it around just because it was so bizarre. But this was a, a review of the PlayStation 5. Um, and he's going through, I, I don't know, I'm not a gamer. Uh, but then it's like the bottom paragraph. It's like, but how can we even talk about the PlayStation 5 at a time when, you know, it's just this like little socialist screed for four paragraphs. And there's so much of that. You know, it's hard these days, I feel like, to find a movie review that like tells you something so, about the I'm movie. I'm so exhausted <laughs> by these movie reviews. Right? Simply, basically counting the numbers or uh, it's the same review of every fucking movie. <laughs> I have no idea whether it's any good. Right. And you would have no idea that, I, I don't know, you know, you can read, um, I was in college. I took, you know, I took like some, I, the class wasn't called Famous Russian Novels, but, you know, it was like that. You read those. Like, I don't, I'm not a Christian socialist like Tolstoy. I don't, I don't even understand what Dostoevsky's ideas are. I don't think I share them. Uh, those are great novels, you know, like you're supposed to, just read stuff yeah. that's good. Yeah. Think about it. But I'm not gonna I don't let know. you I'm not gonna <laughs> let you let the times off that easily. Like All David right. David now is reduced to one column because <laughs> the pressure is so intense. Um taking him down. But I thought And that- Ross, you know, Ross is Ross is Ross is so good. It's so smart, so brilliant, but also so so polite. <laughs> so unbelievably pulling of various so in so extraordinarily attuned to the social implications well, they see, of these particular they, they, rem- you can just feel it and I sort of every now and again I want to say Ross fucking give it to us give it to us stop all these stop all these fucking qualifications just tell us I know I know what you think you're not you and of course you know I don't want him to do that all the time but but look that's you've named I mean they have Brett Stevens is a completely conventional neocon um, no but what's funny at the times so there was this no Trump supporters no one even sympathetic to Trumpism not not not, not on the op-ed page but I thought one of the funny so well, come n- on n- shouldn't n- that be somebody representing the ideas if not the person the ideas of so, for example, is there anybody that believes in restricting immigration? Is there anybody that opposes 
critical theory taking over every single institution in the country? They, I mean, there's, I guess, Brett Stevens does it. Yeah, like, they're there. But they're overwhelmingly there, you know, I mean, overwhelmed what? by the vast number of people saying from exactly the same point of view, just checking various boxes of race and what, gender. What, and all what I thought was really bad at the time. So N- Nellie Bowles has done a, She's ser- fantastic. a series of good articles yeah. about protester excesses and, and, you know, various different things on that, on that genre. So her most recent one was about people who'd had their businesses wrecked by rioting. Right. Um, and so the lead, I forget exactly what it said, but it's like looting, arson, you know, it's like all the strong language there. Um, but the headline, because at the times people don't write their own headlines. So in the headline, it says unrest. And if people listening here don't know, like this is such a thing inside media now is this struggle over whether you can use the word riot to describe rioting or whether you have to call it unrest. And I saw it there and I saw it there and I was like, this is so funny that she's written this really good article and they have published it and, you know, good for them. But then somebody over from the headlining team is like, you can't, you can't say looting. You can't say arson in the headline. You have to call it unrest, quote unquote. And I don't even know why that's better. You know, like Look, it's a, it's a was, bizarre thing. I mean, thing. I'm not supposed to talk about things at New York Magazine, so I won't. But, but, but my attempt to use the word riot in the text yes. was ruled out of bounds by the copy editor. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> a media institution has decided that a word is not allowed. A word. Yes. And a writer is not allowed to, use, to choose the words he uses. Yes. And not only that, but it's an obviously phony ideological attempt to to distort reality or to coerce writers into a certain way of thinking. And that was not fun. It yes. was not fun to have to go through a process where you're defending the right for you to express your views in language that, that, that is real. And, and I, I guess you can say when people are rampaging through the streets and smashing windows uh, in various stores and burning down people's businesses, that it's unrest. <laughs> I, I, was, I was able to compromise on vandalism. Well, that was, yes, uh, maybe. Well, <laughs> that, was, so, that, okay. was, that, was, that was where at, at Vox we were able to, to settle but on. But it's ridiculous that any of these fucking things should be, should be uh, enforced like this. I mean, exactly. if, I, if I'm ungrammatical, fine. If I spell something wrong, fine. If I'm factually wrong, fine. I love editing. It's, and this is the, I just want to get this off my chest. The idea <laughs> that you and I, or Glenn Green, well, I don't, well, Glenn, or, didn't like being edited is such fucking nonsense or that we weren't edited i mean i was so grateful for the editing at new york magazine they're fucking great editors there um and they really helped me and the fact checking the solid fact checking fucking important i'm terrified that i've missed something this time uh but the woke checking which is what i called it Uh the sensitivity reading all this stuff is just it's 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 inimical to encouraging individual writers to to write i mean i i was really affected by affected with an a i don't know uh i i, I don't know what what happened up, up where you live but i i live near 14th street a little closer to downtown and so after protests uh downtown got rowdy over the summer people who definitely not the sort of mainstream organizers of the protest, but troublemakers would come streaming out of that area. And they smashed a bunch of stuff in the neighborhood. And they weren't like targeting 
symbols of global capitalism. And you, you could see, you could look in, in the neighborhood, and it was so the liquor store got its windows smashed in, but the pour over coffee shop did not. Right. No, because I mean, I had a lot of people who they would want to say, OK, this quote unquote unrest, it's about gentrification or whatever. But again, you could tell liquor store, uh, the pharmacy was ransacked. The guys, you know, immigrants who they run a cell phone repair store um, and they, you know, they had their their livelihoods ruined by theft. But because, you know, people it's just like young guys smashing things and stealing what this shit. Is, yes. Like I was a young guy, you know, I I participated in 1994 in uh, you know, Rangers victory celebratory riots in in New York. Um Rangers the, the hockey team. Okay. The hockey team won the Stanley Cup for the first time in 75 years. People went out on the streets. They went nuts. I helped some other dudes flip a car over. You know, it's not the end of the world. I'm 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 not like a, a horrible person, but it's just dumbass young male. young man bullshit yeah. when you can get away with it. Yeah. And like that's what goes on in these situations and to create a like higher political rationalization for it because you don't want to say that just the obvious like everybody knows this it's like young men especially i mean older men too perhaps young women but particularly young men hmm, if, they, you, if you don't put some rules in place bad shit happens and everybody knows that like in the in their real world ways and you know we saw that happening over the summer we saw it happen worse in some other cities people are really hurt by it you know you own a business and your inventory gets stolen that's a big problem but people notice and remember of course uh, who glorified this or justified it and and it is perfectly legitimate, it seems to me. And that, I think, I mean, it, again, I'm told this is not true, or, or, but it, it has to have an effect on how people think of the Democratic Party in general. And, uh, you know, there have been slight increases, we think, in the Republican vote among some African-Americans who might have watched this happen. Again, the idea that uh, African Americans in their own neighborhood want to get rid of the cops or are happy to see their own businesses be burned to the ground is something that only uh, a white person at Vox would understand or believe. Sorry, I, I don't mean that. This, but, but it's like obviously no one wants their own neighborhood to be burned to the ground. And, uh, and obviously a political party that doesn't seem to be viscerally hostile to that. I mean, Nicole Hannah Jones was proud, she said, to have some of this rioting and looting to be named the 1619 riots. Uh Proud of it. Um, And Bill Maher had this fantastic line uh, last Friday when he said, uh, this is the party that says that silence is violence, but looting isn't. Uh I mean, this, this, that slogan, silence is violence. I mean, yes, white silence is violence, of course. It's always white people. I mean, I hear that thing and I'm like, fuck you. Well, and I, if somebody can't just be silent, you're forcing people to mouth certain slogans as fucking Maoists. What I thought was crazy about that moment is how much further left so much of the media was than the actual politics. That if you experienced that moment in America exclusively through the words of Democratic Party mayors, uh, particularly the Black ones like Bowser here in Washington or Keisha Lance Bottoms in Atlanta, um, 
uh, I, I forget, Lori Lightfoot, I think in Chicago, they were all saying completely correct, very sensible things. Including also black police chiefs. Yeah, then you go to some of the white mayors in Portland and Seattle, and their statements and their behavior is much more equivocal. And then you go to some of the takes that were coming out of, you know, lots of places, and they're downright bizarre, you know, loopy, loopy stuff. And it's, I mean, we we were talking about this earlier in, in the election, but it's like people... Separate from the partisan politics, it's like you've got to get closer to reality, like regular. I don't know. You know, my kids in public school in my neighborhood, it's a diverse school. It's an interesting way. You know, you meet different people from different walks of life. And I don't know, you know, immigrants from El Salvador and people from the black church, like they don't want they they want the police to treat people in a more respectful way than yes. they do they absolutely do they it's a it's a it's a serious problem and there's clearly but, a big majority of support for that that's but, the other thing but, there's real support for criminal justice reform across the aisle but this stuff actually has made it harder recreational rioting is a very marginal kind of thing and the people doing it though deserve to be marginalized not dismissed as unimportant because it it's a big deal when, when, the, when these things happen and you and you know you gotta clamp down on it and the extent to which like this apologetics were not coming from protest organizers they were coming from people sitting behind their laptops in positions of relative privilege but trying to be edgy you know or trying to do what they thought would be more supportive. Uh, and I'm and okay with that if they weren't actually attempting to prevent others from offering different perspectives. There was something really creepy about that. I had to, had to take the week off. It was a, because the, I would have been not mm-hmm, totally mm-hmm. on board. I mean, I would be partly on board, but because no one could possibly defend what happened to, 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 to George Floyd, et cetera. Um, but, uh, but yeah. It was a strange moment. It was almost like a cult-like moment. And um, I, I mean, I, suddenly everybody and this ubiquity of the BLM stuff, the, the fact that people had to put everything in that window. I mean, there was something truly creepy about that moment in my, in my view. I mean, I looked around me and I thought, what has happened to you all? Like, why have you suddenly slipped into this other dimension in which suddenly all this is, I mean, I, I, think, I think there are culty aspects to politics on both, I hate, I'm not allowed to say this anymore, on <laughs> both sides. I think the Trump cult is incredibly dangerous and damaging. Uh, but I also think the woke cult is getting a bit like that too. And as much as it's immune to reality, and, it's, and in fact, if it were to concede to reality, it would begin to crack up, have a psychic break like this motherfucker is having right now. And he's just sitting there incapable of acknowledging that he lost the election. Um, but anyway, Matt, I'll give you the last word. Uh, what, 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 what do you think? What do you think's going to happen uh, in America? Yeah, what do you think's going to happen with the Biden administration? Do I don't know. Do I mean, look. So my fear of a Biden administration is that Republicans will win these Senate races in Georgia. That McConnell will continue with the sort of extreme attitude he had toward Obama, and it's going to be really hard for Biden to just put competent people into administration. And then he's going to come under pressure from activists on the left to do loopy things. And I, and I worry that Biden could be overmatched. 
by intransigence from Republicans and a total lack of perspective from progressives. I hope that it goes the opposite way, right? I hope that we get Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema as the deciding votes in the Senate, that we, if we do any big legislative changes, they have to be bipartisan. If we don't do big changes, that's okay. We can have some competent administration of the government. We can have a sensible president who takes the temperature down on a few things. The media can sort out its own weird issues <laughs> that are out there. I mean, I think there's a lot of us who have audiences uh, outside now, those institutions. I hope we can get some new institutions up and running off the ground to, you know, reflect more normal, widely held viewpoints. And, you know, that would be my hope. I mean, that was always, I think, the, the promise of the Biden administration is that we can bring, give back voice to, I think, the very widely held <laughs> sentiments that, like, America's okay. Change is okay. We can we can go along and get along. We can try to tackle like the level of pollution in our air as a practical problem rather than a looming apocalypse. And I I hold out hope, but I could I can see it going the other way. You know, I'm I'm not I, I don't have a lot of confidence that the post-Trump Republicans are chastened or that the left really has its shit together in any way. From your mouth to God's ears, in terms of your hopes, um, I have to say that I am, I'm, I, I am not optimistic, but I am hopeful. There you go. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, that's roughly, we're in the same spot after all these years. Anyway, thank you, Matt, so much for coming on um, and risking your reputation. Thank you. <laughs> it's been fun. Always fun to talk to you. Thank you. Awesome. 